If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to James chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, we are longing for you to speak to us. Because, Lord, we can gather here, we can do a variety of things. But unless you speak to us through your word, Lord, it is all for naught. Holy Spirit, we ask that as you are here with us this morning, that you would even now have already been preparing our hearts to hear this word. That we might respond in faith, be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was younger, I, about 14, I, with a couple of other senior adult ladies, we would go every Sunday morning to the local nursing home. And, um, and I was, I guess I was the token male, and so I was the guy up in front that would lead the music, whether or not I could sing that well or not. I was the guy that, you know, waved his hand as though he knew how to wave his hand appropriately. And, and. We would get there and always it was the same people that would come and gather on a Sunday morning for worship and, um, and they would come and I remember that there was this one lady and uh, her name was Miss Flossie and Miss Flossie, she only wanted to sing one song and she always wanted to sing it as a special and the song was Jesus is on the main line. Now have you ever heard that song? I'm not going to sing it for you. But regardless, it just goes over and over. Jesus is on the main line. You can tell him what you want. Now, looking back at that song, maybe there's some theological problems with it. But for her, living in this context where everything was being done for her, even if she didn't want the thing to be done for her, she was dependent upon everyone else, and yet she knew that she could call upon Jesus, and he would listen, and she told him what she wanted. And the unique thing I think about Christian hymns is that Christian hymns speak to us in every part of life. So I think back about some of the songs as I was going to that nursing home that were really powerful in my life. I think of songs like The Old Rugged Cross or the song uh, He Set Me Free. We used to use the Heavenly Highways hymnal, the little thin one, red one. He Set Me Free or I Shall Not Be Moved, which sounds very Baptist, right? 
But regardless, those hymns, they meant something to me as a kid. And now as I look back and reflect on those hymns, they, they have a richer meaning, a deeper meaning. And I'm sure it's the same in your life. There are hymns that even now as I'm talking about some of these hymns, you're thinking of maybe Blessed Assurance or you're thinking of It Is Well With My Soul. And so in those points in your life where, where something is hard or something difficult is happening, those hymns become very rich to you. They become very deep and meaningful for you. The same is true of W.B. Stevens' song, Farther Along. You remember that one? Farther Along. Listen to some of the words of that song. It's, it's one of those songs that, that speaks to you in the lowest point of your life. He says, Farther along, we'll know more about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brother. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. Now the verses, he says, sometimes I wonder why I must suffer. Go in the rain, the cold, and the snow when there are many living in comfort, giving no heed to all I can do. Tempted and tried, how often we question. Why we must suffer year after year, being accused by those of our loved ones, even though we walk in God's holy fear. Often, when death has taken our loved ones, leaving our home so lone and so drear, then do we wonder why others prosper, living so wicked year after year. Farther along, we'll know more about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. So he says, cheer up, my brother. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. I wonder if Stevens was thinking about what James is saying here in this text. When he writes these words, is he thinking about what James says in chapter 1? As we look back at chapter 1, he's talking about this this theme of trial. He says we're, we're told by James that we should consider it all joy when we experience various kinds of trials. And how were we supposed to do that? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The only way that we can find joy in the midst of the trial is if we remember who we are. We have to remember who we are. That we are children of God. That we have a unique perspective on life. That we look at our our trials, our circumstances, our, our difficulties in light of eternity, not just in light of what's happening right now. We also have to remember that everything matters, doesn't it? It doesn't matter if it's the job or if it's the boss or if it's your marriage. It doesn't matter if it's the loss of someone really close to you or just depression, circumstances, whatever it is. Everything matters. Even the good things matter because in all of it, we have an opportunity to respond in faith to what God is doing in our lives. We have to trust God to refine us through that fiery trial. We have to believe that what God is doing in the trial actually will make sense, as Stephen says, by and by. So if we're going to grow spiritually, which that's the hope through every trial, we're going to grow spiritually and endure 
to the end with joy through the trial, he says to us in that next section that we have to have wisdom in order to do it. And I don't know about you, I'm sure that you're like me and you lack wisdom. And if you lack wisdom, what does he say for us to do? Ask for it. Ask for it. And the God who gives all things, he says, he is reliable. God is reliable. And he sincerely desires to give you wisdom so that you can endure the trial with joy. But we have to ask him in faith. Not with a double mind, but with faith. And then James described two different kinds of trials. The poor and the rich. Now regardless of whether you, where, where you think you fall on that spectrum, whether you're in the poor category or in the rich category, he commands both to boast, doesn't he? That's a very interesting thing to do. But he says that we're supposed to boast. Now we're not supposed to boast in ourselves because that would be pride. But we're supposed to boast in God. The boasting that we do is centered in God. So for the poor, he says, boast in the fact that God has given you eternal life. So God has exalted you. You have an exalted status. You've been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So boast in the fact that God is at work in giving you eternal life. But then he says to the rich, he says, boast in the fact that God alone is the one who's unchanging. Everything else in your life, all of the money that you have, all of the houses that you have, all of the comfort and the pleasure that you have, all of it will stop. All of it will end. There is only one person in the entire universe who is immutable, unchanging. It's God. To boast in him. So as we look at this passage here in verse 12 down to verse 18, James is wrapping up his discussion of trial. Now I want you to notice three key components to this passage this morning. The first is the promise of life that James points out to us. The second is the threat of temptation. And the last one is the determination of God. The determination of God. So let's look together at verse 12 as he talks about the promise of of life. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So let's just pick apart that passage just for a moment. What do you think James means when he uses the word blessed? What does he mean when he says, blessed is the man? Now, a lot of people nowadays think that the word blessed automatically means something like happy. So happy is the man. Well, does that mean we're supposed to always go about smiling and being bubbly? And even though difficult things are happening in our life, we're just really happy and go lucky and that kind of thing. Now, if there was somebody like that in your life, you'd want to punch him, right? <laughs> blessed can't just mean happy. It's a lot bigger than that. It's more important than that. It's not just an emotional state because our emotional state will vary. We are emotional beings and so as we ride this roller coaster of life, our emotions go up and they go down. They're backwards, but it does what it does. It goes up and down. It changes based on circumstances. Things happen in our lives that cause us to be different emotionally. Even in our, in our covenant, our JBC covenant, 
It says, we will joyfully, as a, this is what we have identified as something that we want to keep covenant with one another about. We will joyfully submit to one another in brotherly love, pray for one another, and aid one another during times of sickness and distress. And now listen to this. We will weep with those who weep. We will rejoice with those who rejoice. How? By cultivating feelings of sympathy, compassion, respect toward one another. Our emotions change. But we are in the process of trying to cultivate feelings. Change feelings. Blessed means that we experience the favor and kindness of God. And it was, as a result, that experience of, of, of the presence of God in our life evokes uh, many different kinds of emotional feelings, doesn't it? I mean, it, it evokes peace in times where you are, you are at your limit. The presence of God causes peace to come. The presence of God causes comfort to come. The presence of God causes joy and excitement and passion and pleasure. And indeed, it does cause happiness to come. But blessed doesn't simply mean happy. It means that the presence of God is in your life causing things to happen. Now, notice how James explains the context of this blessedness. He says, if we remain faithful, God will give to us, in short, eternal life. Now, it reminds me of what what Paul says in Colossians 1 that we just read just a few minutes ago, where he says, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Now it's important for us to notice that that Jesus, Jesus is the one who secured it. Did you see that? He's the one that has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, us. Jesus is the one who has secured our salvation, and he did that for a reason. So that, he says, he can present us blameless before God. But then there's also this necessity for us to be faithful people. God doesn't just save us so that we can continue down the same path that we were once on. No, he saves us and he redirects us completely to a different path. So just to go back to our our last series, it's not the wide path that we're going down and Jesus saves us and we just continue to march down that path. No, he takes us and he transplants us to the narrow, the hard path. Because that's the only path that leads to life. Genuine faith causes obedience. Now, we have to endure. And that's the point. We cannot abandon the faith. We cannot walk away from the gospel and expect the blessing and eternal life. Now, there's some people in our circles who have cognitive dissonance when it comes to what they believe and then what they see happening in their life. They've prayed a prayer years ago. They walked an aisle. They wrote their name on a card, wrote their name and date in the back of the Bible. And now they're living in a way that is completely contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
without any conviction of sin, habitually entering into a lifestyle of sin, unrepentance, doing the things that they want to do as the people of Israel did, living in such a way that is right in their own eyes, and yet they, they're saved. Saved because they said this magical grouping of words. And because of that, then God is required then to do what he's supposed to do on Judgment Day because they did what they were supposed to do 25 years ago. Friends, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is a struggle, but it's a struggle toward holiness, not away from holiness. We are called to endure. The word says that God is the one who starts this whole thing. He's the one that calls us, woos us by the the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the by the power of the Spirit, God empowers us then to be faithful people, to walk in such a way, as Paul says, that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, and God is the one who will finish it out. So at no point are you living your life with a theology of sola bootstrapa. You're just doing it by your own strength, trying to accomplish what you can accomplish for God. No, at no point are you on your own lone rangering it for Jesus. No. Jesus is there with you, strengthening you, empowering you. Paul tells the Philippians, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God's the one who started it in your life. God's the one that's going to finish it. James uses beautiful imagery here in this verse. He says, the crown of life. Crown of life. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word crown? I think of Edward the Longshanks. I'm just saying. William Wallace, Edward the Longshanks, crown. That's what I think of when I hear the word crown. I think of a gem-studded kind of headdress that a king or a queen will wear. But that's probably not what James is thinking about. In the Roman world, this word usually referred to the, uh, the, 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 the headdress or the wreath that an athlete would wear after they had become the victor at this particular athletic event. And so I think that James is probably thinking about this same kind of use of the word. Just like Paul did in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says that every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but then notice he says, but ours is imperishable. James is probably thinking the same kind of thing. So an, an athlete receives a victor's crown at the end of the race... And so as Christians, after we have faithfully endured the trials of life, God says, I will give to you the victor's crown. I will give to you the crown of life. This crown is the reward of eternal life. This is what Jesus says to Christians suffering in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 2, chapter 2, verse 10, he says, he says to them, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. So he says, be faithful unto death and I will give to you the crown of life. Friends, we have to remember the promise of life if we want to endure the trial. It goes back to that first point that we made three or four weeks ago. You have to remember who you are. You have to remember what it is that God has done in your life to make you who you are. You have to remember this promise of life if you're going to endure the trial. 
But we also have to understand the threat of temptation and the process of our sin nature. Look there at verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Why does he say this? For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And when we think about temptation, we have to think about our own tendency to blame God for our sinfulness. Now, maybe you don't really think about that. Maybe that's not something you've ever really thought about, you blaming God. Or, or maybe that's something that you have thought about and you've voiced it maybe to a close friend or something like that. But James says, he says, don't say, God is tempting me. God is tempting me. Kind of like that old story that every preacher uses in the United States. That the little story, Johnny, and Johnny goes to his mom and the mom says, why did you do that, Johnny? And Johnny says, devil, devil made me do it, mom. Devil made me do it. And then she says, well, I'm going to beat the devil right out of you. Something like that. <laughs> Same kind of thing, but focused on somebody else. God made me do it. God's tempting me to do these things. Why is he putting this stuff in my life? Why is this happening to me? James says, don't do that. God cannot be tempted by evil because temptation or the susceptibility of temptation begins in here. And God cannot be susceptible to temptation because he himself is perfect and holy. God has no desires that would lead him into sinful acts. His goodness is also impenetrable so that he cannot tempt other people to do sin either. So let's think about this. What about Jesus in the wilderness? That's the question, right? What about Jesus in the wilderness? God uses this event as a test. Satan uses this event as an opportunity for temptation. Now, who is the one that's tempting Jesus? Is it God? No, it's Satan. Who's the one that led Jesus out into the wilderness? Well, the text says Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So did God tempt Jesus to sin? No. He did take him to a place of intense trial. He did take him to a place where he would be tested for his good. And Satan uses that opportunity to tempt Jesus to sin. Friends, it's the same for us in our lives. God uses things in our lives as tests, as trials. And oftentimes it's the same exact event or circumstance or relationship that the devil will use to tempt you to sin. And the danger for us is that we will blame God for the temptation. Another example of this, Adam and Eve. You remember the story. Adam and Eve are in this perfect garden. Everything is awesome. Right, Cademan? Everything is incredible and beautiful and wonderful. Everything is good. They have everything that they need. And yet, Eve sins. She eats of the fruit that she knows she's not supposed to eat from. She gives some to her husband, who's a lunk, and takes it and eats it. And God comes to them. 
And what do they do after that? Oh boy, if there was ever a blame game. He says to Eve, why? Why did you do this? And Eve says, the serpent made me do it. He says to Adam, why did you do this? And he says, the woman you gave to me, she gave it to me and I ate. Man, all of this, what are they saying? It's not me. It's not my fault. God, you made these people. You made this serpent. You made this woman. I didn't ask you to make her. Look what you did. God, you're the one who's responsible for my failure. You tempted me and I failed. It's not my fault. It's your fault. Now, we've all done that, haven't we? All of us. Say things like this, this cake tastes so good, I just can't help myself. I have to have another piece. God made me into a sexual being. He wants me to be happy. I should be able to do what makes me happy. I know I have a bad temper, but you know, God made me that way. I just say it how it is. That's my personality. Say things like that. You fill in the blank, thing that describes you. In all of it, What we're doing is we're blaming God for making us this way, for our own tendency to sin instead of examining our own heart problem. These heart problems, just in those examples, uncontrolled life, undisciplined, selfishness, pridefulness, unloving, those are heart problems. The temptation begins within. Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These, he says, these are what defile a person. So we have to understand the threat of temptation. What's the difference between temptation and trial? Both of these words in 12 and 13, they come from the same root word. There's not a whole lot of difference between them. But the difference between the trial and the temptation is the purpose or the intent. God gives us trials in our lives. Why? He gives us those trials to build our faith and teach us dependence upon Him. We succumb to temptation because we lack faith. We trust in ourselves and we choose to do what is right in our own eyes. Temptation begins with your desires. Now, not all desires are wrong, right? Not all desires are bad. We don't want to become like, you know, 10th century monks and wear wool blankets around ourselves all the time and sleep on a bed of nails or whatever it is, walk up, you know, stairs on our knees with glass and all kinds of things. We don't want to do that because that's not really that healthy either. God gives us the ability to desire things. That's part of being human, that we desire things, we enjoy things. I mean, just the ideas of a man and a woman desiring to be married, that's a good thing. That's a thing that God has has put within us. Paul says that the desire to be an overseer, the desire to be a pastor, he says that's a good thing to desire. The desire to help other people, to love other people, that's a good desire. The problem is when we become enslaved to poorly chosen desire. Paul says as Christians, we are not to be enslaved by anything. We're to be slaves of righteousness, he says in Romans 6. Now, notice what happens in this progression. Look back at that, at verse 13. 
the desire. Then he says we're, we're lured or, or drawn away, almost like captivated, enticed. Then we choose to embrace the temptation. There's that choice, right? So the concept of, of every time you're tempted, that being sin, that's not sin. Sometimes we have a spectrum of Christians oftentimes in churches. We have licentiousness and we have legalism. Licentiousness says anything goes, like the lady in the uh, Indiana Jones movie, right? And then the, uh, the, uh, the other person, the legalist, is e- nothing goes. Everything's bad. So we have these two different ends of the spectrum. And we can't live on those two ends of the spectrum. We have to live where God has placed us and we have to understand that temptation itself is not sin. It is the embracing of the temptation. It is the choosing of the temptation. It is the following down the path. It's the second glance. That is where the sin then takes hold of us. And that sin, he says, eventually leads to death. If we want to fight against temptation, we have to understand, just as we've been talking about for the entire summer, that every response to temptation is some sort of worship. What you're saying about the sin is that this is more worthwhile, this is more valuable than Christ. This is the thing that I'm going to elevate in my life instead of God. This is the idol that I'm going to bow down before instead of God. It's an act of worship. And our hearts, friends, our hearts will deceive us in thinking that we're right in doing what we want to do. Sin clouds our minds. It causes us to think that our life and what we want and our happiness, it is the most important, and it's truly not. The author of Hebrews says that we ought to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And sin deceives. Our hearts deceive us. Steve Gallagher He wrote a book called The Altar of Sexual Idolatry. He says this. He says, typically those who are the most entangled in sin are the very ones who cannot see its presence at work inside them. Sin has the ability to mask itself so well that it can actually make the person who deals with it the least think he's the most spiritual. So if you're sitting here thinking to yourself right now, glad I'm not one of those folks who's struggling with temptation all the time. Gallagher's probably saying to you, you're in big trouble. You've got some big problems on the horizon. There's an undercurrent of unrepentance. There's an undercurrent of unspiritual kind of living because if you begin to think that all of a sudden you've arrived, and you know what, this Christian life thing, man, it's going pretty well. It's not that difficult at all. That means you're plateaued or declining because the consistent living of a godly life is hard. It's difficult. It's pruning. It's trimming. It's pressing. Friends, Paul says, you do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. So don't blame God for the temptation or your failure to endure temptation. Don't be deceived in trying to to blame God for your sinful tendencies and desires, but take every opportunity 
this morning included, take every opportunity to examine your own heart. Look at yourself. And then remember the determination of God to bring you through trials all the way to maturity. Look at the determination of God. Look at verse, the next verses. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So right now, if you're going through a trial, resist the temptation to think that God doesn't care, that God doesn't even know what's going on in your life, that God is removed, he's separated. Don't be deceived by that. James says, remember the origin of the gifts. Remember the origin of the gifts. He says, every gift, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. So remember that every good thing that you have in your life, every perfect thing, maybe the good thing, you can recognize it right now. Right now you look out and you see your family and you say, that's a good gift that God has given me. You look at your church family and say, that is a good gift that God has given me. You look at your job and you say, thank you, Lord, that is a good thing that you've placed in my life. You recognize those good things. But when he says perfect, he's talking about a mature gift. Maybe right now the things that you're looking at your life and you're saying, why is that happening? Or why is this person in my life, why do they keep doing these kinds of things? Maybe that's a perfect gift. Maybe it's a gift that in the fullness of time, you will understand why it is that God put that in your life. Because that is going to bring you into a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. It's going to press you into the image of Christ. So whether it's a hardship now or a pleasant experience now, God always gives good things to his kids. Paul says in Romans 8, he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's a lot easier to hear when you're not going through a trial, isn't it? It's a lot easier to hear when everything seems to be just hunky-dory in your life. But he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to their purposes? No. His purposes. And what are his purposes? He, he follows it up with it. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what is it God at work in you to do? He's going to bring you all the way through, even to the other side of the trial, of life. It's going to bring you right where you need to be, to glory, he says. Friends, remember the origin of the gifts. But remember the character of the giver. Look what he says. He says, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't change. 
There's this two doctrines when you study Christian doctrine. The doctrine of God's divine aseity, which is to say that he is independent from all things. God is not in need of anything. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need creation. He stands alone as the only one independent of all things. This is the idea of what God is. But also that God is immutable, that he doesn't change. He is always the same, forever the same. He doesn't change. We look at God in this way. He says, remember, there is no variation with God. There is no altering. There is no shadow of God because he is light, the father of lights. He doesn't change. And what did he say earlier about God? He said that God sincerely desires to give wisdom to you. He sincerely desires to give you good gifts because you're his child. He earnestly wants to do this. Is he going to change his mind? No. No. He is the one who gives us everything that we need. Peter says this in in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, God's divine power has granted to us all things. Don't you love all those absolutes they keep throwing around? All things that pertain to life and to godliness. He says, through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious, very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You have to remember the character of the giver. He has given you everything that you need for life, for godliness. He's given you everything that you need to respond in faith in the trial. And finally, remember the purpose of the gifts. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God has given us new life through Jesus Christ. He's called us out of darkness. He has ushered us into the light. God has has given us hope by making his church, by making you a foretaste of what is to come. Do you realize that that's what you are? Sometimes it's overwhelming for me as as I sit in front listening to all of you sing. And that was what happened to me this morning. As I listen to your voices, I imagine that one day all of us will gather in the throne room of God and then there will be myriad upon myriad of people like us all singing to the glory of God. Friends, we are a first fruit. New creation, that's what Paul says. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are the first fruits of the new creation that is to come. Paul says in Romans 8, he says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Notice this, he says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, And not only the creation, but we, ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. Friends, God will not abandon you in your trial. But he's given you trials so that we can endure to the end. So that we can be made faithful and receive the crown of life. So right now, this morning... If you're struggling with temptation, maybe that's where you're at. 
Maybe you've struggled with temptation for years and for years you've blamed God for the problems that are going on in your life or your own disobedience. Why did God make me like this? Why did God put this particular person in my life? Why why did God see fit for me to have this kind of an illness or this circumstance? I encourage you this morning, examine your heart. Examine your heart. What is it that you're desiring? What is it that you're wanting? Turn and repent of this. Trust God. Trust in God's goodness to give the things that you need, to give you everything that you need for life and for godliness. Friends, respond in faith. Don't don't respond with a double mind. Respond in faith. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to hear that God isn't going to ever give up on you. Right now you just feel abandoned. You feel frustrated in life. God is determined to bring you through to the other side. That's what he's going to do. The world may look hard, difficult, corrupt, but the spark of hope in your heart is just a glimmer of the glory that will be revealed in the fullness of time. Everything has a purpose. That's what Stevens finishes his song out with. He says, faithful till death says our Lord. Short is our time to labor and wait. Then will our toiling seem to be nothing. When we shall pass the heavenly gate. He says, farther along we'll know more about it. Farther along we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brother. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand it. Father, this morning as we think about trials, as we think about life, as we try to understand temptation, as we try to fight against temptation in our own hearts, we pray, Lord, that you would give to us grace upon grace. That even in the most difficult of times, Father, we pray that you would help us to respond in faith, believing that you are going to change us, make us more like Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name.